welcome to Lone Star Latter-day Saint Voices, a podcast dedicated to conversations with members of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints in North Texas. I'm your host, Eric Egan. Elder James B. Martino of the First Quorum of the Seventy of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and his wife, Jenny Martino, are native Texans, both born and raised in Denton. Elder Martino has served for more than 12 years as a general authority, and his service is now complete. He will be officially released from his calling in the October 2021 General Conference, so the Martinos have moved back to Denton. In this episode of Lone Star Latter-day Saint Voices, Elder and Sister Martino will share experiences from their youth, talk about their individual conversions to the gospel of Jesus Christ, the growth of the church in the Metroplex, and the opportunities they've had to serve and testify of Jesus Christ in many parts of the world. Elder and Sister Martino, thank you for joining us on this episode of Lone Star Latter-day Saint Voices. It is a privilege, Eric, to be with you and to be able to share some of our experiences. We look forward to talking to you. Thank you. Well, one thing that's neat about you two is that you are both born and raised in Denton, Texas. Tell us a little bit about that. Well, we were both born in Denton, Texas, in Flo Memorial Hospital, as were all five of our children. We are truly Dentonites. Went to high school together, and we love love Texas. Well, in fact, we became high school sweethearts when we met in the ninth grade when I was a Methodist and she was a Baptist. Exactly. <laughs> we I never dreamed that life would turn out with these experiences that we've had when I met this boy in high school, but it's been a wonderful life. It's been a great life. Well, talk a little bit about that. You, you met in high school and what happened in those high school years that drew you to each other and to the gospel as well? Well, I was drawn to Jim because he... He was so kind. He was thoughtful. He was smart. He was, he treated me so respectful and I was just drawn to him for so many reasons. And we began dating. He was a Methodist and I was a Baptist and that worked out pretty well for us. And then when we, he was 17, he joined the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And being the Baptist girl that I was, I was not too excited about that decision he made. In in fact, what happened, Eric, is that my parents and brothers joined the church a year before I did. I didn't join because they joined. And it took me a year longer. But once I was baptized, I was baptized because I knew the gospel was true, that that the church had been restored upon the earth. I didn't do a great job of teaching this girl I was dating for some reason at that time. I think part of it was because she wasn't listening, but I also didn't do a great job of teaching. But we made it kept going. And then I went to the University of Texas my freshman year, and she stayed at the University of North Texas in Denton. And after that freshman year, I came home and we went to summer school at North Texas together. And And then sometime during that semester, at the very end of it, I informed her that I was going to be leaving for two years as a missionary for the church. How was your reaction? I wasn't excited about that decision either. (laughs) In fact, I was not going to wait on a Mormon missionary. So I said, adios to him. But I really liked him. So we kept writing the two years he was gone. And I knew before he came home, I had to find out for myself if the church was true or not. I had 
angels on this side of the veil that invited me to take the missionary discussions in their home, which I did. I began reading the Book of Mormon, and I stopped praying that he would find out that the church was not true and that I would find out for myself one way or the other. And when you have a good fellowshipping family and you take the discussions and you pray about it and you read. And you're sincere. And I'm sincere. I really wanted to know before he came home. I gained a testimony. I found out for myself that it was true. So I come home from my mission and the week I get home, I baptized her. Oh, wonderful. And then the next week we moved to BYU to go to BYU. And that's where I learned the gospel. I went to BYU as a one-week-old member of the church, and I was a senior in college. All I needed were two classes in psychology and four years of religion to graduate. So I took four years of religion in three semesters, and that's really where I learned the gospel. And then we married one year later on my baptismal date so that we could be married at the temple. Greatest choice we ever made. The wait was worth it. Many times we don't want to wait for the good things to come along. We want to rush them along, but that was worth the wait. Elder Martino, when you were on your mission, were you aware that she was doing what she was doing to read and study and pray? Well, she it, it took her about 18 months before <laughs> she started really doing that. And it was the last six months that she realized, I need to find out before he comes home. So I was aware of it. I didn't want to put pressure on her. I, I, I knew she was sincere and wanting to find out, and I wanted her to find out on her own. And literally before I came home, she'd already applied at BYU. She'd already found a job up at, in Provo. She'd rented an apartment. So, so, I mean, she was really just waiting at the end so that I could baptize her. Exactly. And I don't know that I would change. I don't know that I would do that again. I think I would get baptized sooner. <laughs> <laughs> Knowing what you know now. Knowing what I know now, but you were not always the wisest at 21 years old. <laughs> With your Baptist background, I imagine your family may not have welcomed your decision as much as your future husband did. They, they did not <laughs> welcome that decision as much. Exactly. That's an understatement, but you know what? None of them, her family has embraced the gospel, but they've all learned to respect what we do and what we believe. They do question at times, we've got all of these wonderful grandchildren, they say, why do you keep leaving them and leaving the country? <laughs> but, well, why do you keep doing that? Because I want to be with them forever. I leave them so that I can be with them for eternity. And when we are called, we go forth and serve. And we have been blessed enormously. We have lived in Venezuela for three years. We've lived in Guatemala for four years. We've lived in Moscow, Russia for three years. We've lived in Salt Lake City for five years. And every one of those experiences have not only been a blessing to us, but even to our extended family who have not been with us. There is something about the blessings that come from your dedication and your willingness to do what the Lord's called you to do. You know, Eric, one of the things that we all learn is that we don't really see where we're going. We don't know where we're going to be in five years. We don't know what we're going to be doing. But when we stay faithful to what the Lord's asked us to do, then it's going to work out great. I can only tell you that when we got assigned to go to Moscow, Russia, that was a real shock. I'd lived nine years in Latin America, fluent in Spanish. 
And I remember at that time, President Uchtdorf interviewed us and I said, President, do they speak a lot of Spanish in Moscow? He said, I don't think so. And it was a, an experience that we were not anticipating at all, but we absolutely loved being with the saints in Eastern Europe. In fact, it was my favorite assignment. <laughs> Let's go back in time just a little bit. As you talked about going to BYU and, and getting married a year after Sister Martino's baptism date uh, being sealed in the temple, and then you returned to Denton to raise your family. We came back and went to work in a family apparel business. And a lot of people have wondered about this at times too, because I have three brothers and all of four of us were in the family business together, as well as my father. Well, we also have a ranch where we all have built homes out on a ranch. So we're all in the same ward. We're all in the same stake. And so there was a time that dad was our bishop. And then later I became our, everybody's bishop. And then my brother, dad, it, it's just kind of gone on and on. We've had different assignments and we've had different people being president of the companies and all of that. And it's worked. And I think it works when everybody just works to do their best. And it's not ego driven but trying to just make the best for everybody involved. It's been a great experience for us. Tell us a little bit about your family, your children, and uh, what that was like being a busy young family. Well, we have five children. We have four daughters. And then finally our son came along. You know, my husband has been in Collings, busy ones since we got married. I've sat at church for many years by myself with these children. I have had family home evening alone with the children when he's been traveling. I remember one time when he'd been traveling a lot and was home and we were having dinner and he called on one of the children to say the prayer. And our son looked at me and said, can he do that? <laughs> I think I've been gone a little bit too long, a little bit too many times. But when he was home, he was really home. He would be out before state presidency meetings in his suit pants, in his dress shoes, playing basketball with our son. When he was here, he was really here. And, um, our children just grown up knowing that when you have a priesthood calling, you fulfill it. And I always said I would rather have a little bit of a wonderful man's time than a whole lot of an unrighteous man's time. And I've been grateful. You know, we're blessed too because four of our five children still live in the Metroplex. So we're, we're near them and 16 of our 20 grandchildren, well, a couple of them, are not here now because of school or other things, but basically we're raised here. And then the other, our other daughter lives in Virginia and we get to see them. So we're pretty much Texans. You're right. We, we have settled here when we were released. I guess I'm not officially released until general conference, but, but we moved back to Texas as soon as we could. And the only time we've ever left Texas is when the church called us or when, when we were in college. That's the only time we've ever left. And you've come right back. And we've come right back. What was the church like in those days? I'm assuming when you were raising your children, it was in the 70s and 80s primarily. What was the church like in Denton? What stake were you a part of? And what did that growth look like? When I joined the church in 1968, I was a senior in high school. We were part of the Fort Worth stake. And there were only two stakes in the Metroplex, in the Dallas stake and the Fort Worth stake. The Fort Worth State covered from Wichita Falls down to Waco. The ward in Denton covered all of Denton County, all of Wise County, all of Cook County, 
and it was one small ward. It's amazing when you think of the growth that has happened in the area. Some of that is due to missionary work and some of it's due that the area is growing and people have moved in. But it's amazing to see the, the growth. And we've, we've watched as we've raised our children that the LDS young people, even though their numbers may have been small in the school systems, they had a lot of influence, a lot of positive influence. And, and they didn't click together just as they're in their own group. They branched out a lot and had a lot of people involved but they were an influence for good in so many ways. Our visiting teaching routes were much larger back then. We went to Fort Worth for state conference and state meetings, and then to join with Louisville. Yeah, the, the Louisville stake was formed in 1976. And then the Denton stake was formed in 1992. I was on the high council in the Louisville stake when that was formed. And then I was called as the first stake president in the Denton stake in 1992. And at that time, we had a good portion. It's interesting because in 1992, we covered most of anything that was in Frisco or Prosper or any of that area that was in Denton County was part of our stake. We didn't even have a branch or a ward out there because nobody lived there. I mean, the growth that's happened in that corridor has all been since the 90s. It's amazing what's happened there. In fact, most of that's been in since the year 2000. Yeah, now there's large gathering of saints up that way. Oh, in fact, three of our children live in that Frisco Prosper area. So to be the first stake president of the Denton Stake, a town that you were born and raised in, that must have been a significant thing for you and your family. I don't know that we ever looked at it that way. It was a privilege to be able to do that. It was a privilege as much as anything because we were locally from here. We knew the people, our business had influence. We were all, all of us in our family were part of this different civic organizations. And so we knew a lot of people. It gave us opportunities to really reach out and try to be a positive influence on the community. Anytime, any place, whether you're a primary teacher or a state president, Whenever we strive to fulfill whatever calling we've been given, we will bless the lives of others and we will be blessed in that process. I always remember Elder Udorf saying, lift where you stand, lift where you stand, doesn't matter where, where you're serving, what organization you're in, there's so much lifting and encouraging to do in that, in that little realm of where you're standing. Well, and the Lord asks us to lift in different ways. And for the two of you, that included traveling around the world. So tell us a little bit about, first of all, being called as a mission president, and then what happened from there? You know, when, when we received the call to be a mission president, we didn't know where we were going. We were told that it would be Spanish speaking. We had a son that was, in fact, I'll tell a quick story. When, when we came home and we were able to tell our children, we're watching our young son, who at the time was 16, when we all finished, he looked at us and he says, well, what happens to me? And he didn't realize he went with us. He was wondering who we were going to leave him with. Oh. And we said, oh, you go with us. And he goes, oh, I didn't realize that. And so he ended up graduating from high school in Maracaibo, Venezuela. And so once we got that assignment to go there, Jenny and, and Ben 
got all of the Spanish-speaking missions. They were open. That, were, that knew that they were open for new mission presidents. And they had picked where they wanted to go. It wasn't Maracaibo, Venezuela. It was not Maracaibo, Venezuela. <laughs> but when we got there, it was one of our more difficult assignments. It was in our entire mission boundaries, there was not one female member of the church that spoke fluent English. My wife was just beginning to learn Spanish. And so there was not a lot of closeness that she could get with the members because of a lack of communication. Her Spanish is wonderful now, but it wasn't when we started. Would you agree? I don't agree that it's wonderful now, but I'll agree it's better than it was in Venezuela. <laughs> Our son was just learning Spanish as well. So he and I did, he, he said he was only going to stay one year. So he graduated a year early from high school. He and I did two years of seminary in one year. We did everything we could to get him on the, the track to go to BYU a year early and then go on his mission a year early. And he says learning Spanish was one of the great blessings of his life. It was not an easy year for him. It was a challenging year for him, but he did it and he did and it with a great attitude. And he'll tell you now, part of the reason we went was he needed to be there also. Yeah. The, the Lord works in such mysterious ways. And so often when we think we're going to have a challenge and we go in that challenge with faith, it becomes an incredible blessing. doesn't mean it's easy, but it becomes an incredible blessing that blesses not only us, but others. And working with the missionaries, there is just something special, Eric, to be able to spend three years working with these dedicated, faithful young men and young women that served with us. We never had one senior couple in three years, mm. which is, I don't, I've never met anybody else that had that happen, but, but we had none. It was very difficult to get visas into Venezuela, and so they couldn't get them in. But these young men and young women were just tremendous examples for us, and we enjoy still maintaining contact with them. So what years were you there as mission president? 2000 to 2003. In fact, we had a daughter that was a freshman in college at BYU. She had been accepted to go to BYU Jerusalem for a semester. And when she found out we received this mission call, she dropped out of that program. She went to the MTC at night, learned Spanish. She took six months off of BYU and went with us. We put her with a companion up in the Andes Mountains, and she served six months as a mini missionary in our mission. What a great experience to be able to do that. And what happens when you come home from Venezuela? What did you do at that point? When we came home, I was given the calling, if I recall correctly, I think I was the branch mission leader in the Spanish branch. And then I was put on the high council, but over the Spanish branch. And I think I did that for about four years. So you went back to work. And I know, yeah, I went back to work full time. <laughs> we were just 49 when we went to Venezuela. So, And you started getting state callings after that, as I recall. <laughs> they put you right back to work for sure. And, and then after about... I think four years, I was called as a counselor in the Fort Worth Mission Presidency for about six months. And then I was called as an Area 70 for a year, which we thought was going to be a five-year calling. That's what we were told. And then after a year being Area 70, we were interviewed again by President Uchtdorf and called to be a general authority. And we were told 
I believe the interview was in January. And, and we were told then, even though it didn't happen until April conference, that we would be going to Guatemala on our first assignment. And that they asked us to be able to start May 1, literally just a few weeks after conference. So where a lot of people didn't know about it, it was a quick turn after we after it got out. What was that like to meet with President Uchtdorf and be issued a calling like that? It was on a video conference. It was on a video conference. In fact, he said, he interviewed us, and he said, we have a calling for you. you will, will you accept it? Did not tell us what the calling was, just which didn't matter. We were going to say yes, whatever, but he asked us to accept it before he told us what it was. And it took the breath out of me. <laughs> it took the wind out of me. We've been gone three years already. The thought of leaving again, and the original call was for six years, the thought of leaving for six more years. Well, the other thing that, that happened is that we had a, it must have been an exploratory interview in December with, at that time, Elder Russell Nelson and Elder Scott, Richard Scott. And Jenny kept looking at me saying, they're interviewing the wrong person. You've already served as a mission president. They've mistaken it, and they wanted to interview your brother, David. He, she said, you need to call him back and say they interviewed the wrong person. I said, Jenny, I'm not calling them back <laughs> to tell them that they interviewed the wrong person. But thank goodness, because she went through Christmas with no worry at all until the call came in January. And it came to her first that President Uchtdorf wanted to visit with us. And then we found out he, we were scheduling an interview with him. And she looked at me and she said, what does this mean? <laughs> and I said, I don't know. We'll find out. But it couldn't be a call as a general authority. We've already been a mission president. I don't think it'll be that again. So we'll see. When he extended that call for you to be a general authority and talk to you about going to Guatemala, you had a little time to prepare, but that's a lot of change all at once. And it means leaving your home again. It does. And you got to understand, I served as a young missionary in Guatemala and El Salvador. I was so, and we'd done business in Guatemala. She'd been to Guatemala with me. So it's not like she'd never been there. But I was so excited for her to be able to see why I loved the country and the people and the culture and everything about it. And during those four years, her heart became somewhat Guatemalan also. It did. It doesn't take long to fall in love with those indigenous people, those dear people who are so visionary and so faithful and so loving. I mean, you just you just feel loved instantly and accepted by those wonderful people. Um, you, you know, Eric, one of the interesting things about being able to go back to where I had served as a young missionary, one, every branch that I served in was now a stake, not just a ward, but a stake, everyone. But I also got to go back and visit some of my converts and some of the early saints that I knew when I was there. I can tell you this, that without any exception, every single one I met that had remained faithful to the gospel had not just improved their lives spiritually, but their lives temporally and physically had improved dramatically. I would go back and visit some that hadn't remained faithful. 
and the majority of those had not had much change physically and definitely not spiritually. I observed how much the gospel doesn't just bless us spiritually, but it blesses us in every little way. Now, maybe it's not as fast as we'd like it to be, and it doesn't mean that it's always an upward plane. There's always some dips and valleys and and all of that as we go through it. But I was amazed to see the changes in the lives of the people that I had known before. My very first area in El Salvador, within that area that I served in, we were able to participate in the dedication of the San Salvador Temple, which was in the area I had served in as a young missionary. And so it was it was very special. We had three temple dedications when we were down there. We met with presidents of the countries. We saw stakes being created. We, we, we saw in, in an area that in Guatemala that's called the Polo Chic, where we, we, the church does a lot of humanitarian, but sometimes, sometimes it's almost like a little bit of Santa Claus and you give a little bit here and a little bit there, and you're not sure if you're really making differences. We decided as an area presidency that we wanted to see if we could really change a community. And we went into this little community up in the Polo Chic called St. O. We helped, we had got a school built, pharmacy put in, we brought water into the city, electricity into the city. We, we, we met with the city leaders to direct, find out what they wanted to do. And this little indigenous village is now a stake. And it's about 25% LDS in the whole area. My goodness. I mean, it's, they, it's just been incredible to see how with a little bit of help in giving in, in expanding hope, which is what the gospel does, and then giving a little bit of opportunity for education or a little bit of, a little bit of help with some humanitarian to start some self-reliance projects, it just makes all the difference to people. And it's been so heartwarming to see how diligently the church has worked to help these people improve in every aspect of their lives. What a great experience for you as a, as a couple. And it sounds like as parts of your family were able to be part of that as well. When we were in Guatemala, tell them about at Christmas, what we'd always do with the orphanages and all of that. When they, we always had family come down at Christmas. Some of our granddaughters in junior high would take up um, extra lunch money fund from those that wanted to contribute, and they would bring down money to go to orphanage and buy gifts and take them to orphanages. One did a toothbrush drive where she had kids bring new toothbrushes to school. And some of these children to orphanages would say, this is the first time I've ever had my own toothbrush. We took the children into little children cancer hospitals, and they would play games with them and interact with them when they couldn't even speak the language, but children don't need, they don't need that language to connect and to play together. And it was a wonderful, wonderful time for our grandchildren to see Christmas outside of Dallas, Texas. Eric, we even, when we were there, we started a dental clinic in Guatemala City. Now, part of that clinic was to help give good dental care to the full-time missionaries, particularly the, the locals. But the other thing it did was it worked with all of the orphanages. We got involved with the orphanages and they put them on regular dental care with these 
couples that would come down and, and do a dental mission and work in this dental clinic. And it was just amazing what they were able to do. And then we came back and our assignment was to be in, in I, I worked in the missionary department for one year and then two years in the priesthood and family department. And in all three of those years, I was assigned to help oversee. At that time, there were no area presidencies in the domestic United States and Canada. But I was an assistant to a member of the presidency, the 70, and I was asked to supervise North America Central and Idaho. And that was fun. But we really didn't think that was going to be there for three years. We, at, at, once we got to just about that six-year mark, we were called into President Packer's office and invited if we would extend until age 70. So for six more years. <laughs> and, and, and I say till age 70 because some of them were, that were in our group were only extending for two years, others for three, others for four, and ours was the longest to, to extend to six more years which we knew probably meant we would get another international assignment in six years. So, And that happened. It did. We didn't think it would happen quite as fast. But then we got assigned to Russia. And I will tell you, we're of the age that when, I mean, we grew up as kids in the Cuban Missile Crisis. We grew up when, when Russia was... A scary place. <laughs> you, you never even dreamed of going there. But I will tell you that... We never felt afraid in Russia. Now, this even includes when I walked out of an airport one time and I had protesters out there with my picture on signs and it said, James B. Martino, go home. You're not welcome here. But it was obvious that they were paid protesters. And it was an, it was a, an intimidation thing. But I was never afraid. And so we fell in love with the Russian people. And the church is in such an infancy there. I mean, there are only four stakes in our entire area of 17 countries in Europe East. So it was different. Every country, a different language. So. And you speak Spanish and English. And I speak Spanish, which was not one of the languages. <laughs> I guess you just rely on in interpreters in those situations. And Google Translate. Oh, it's amazing what you can do with Google, Google Translate when you're trying to converse in the stores and things like that. But we found the Russian people to be faithful. The Russian Orthodox churches are beautiful. We found them to be kind. Yes, they're a little stoic until you get to know them. But you understand when you see the, what their background is of what they were up against. I'm going to tell you one quick story. And I won't, I won't explain it, but your listeners will understand. We walked into a Russian Orthodox church because they're beautiful, beautiful. The first room you walk into is the creation of the world and the, the universe. The next room you walk into is the Garden of Eden. The next room you walk into is the expulsion of from the Garden of Eden. And then the next room you go into is all the scenes of the earth, biblical scenes. Then you get up to the where the, what they call the Iconostasis, and there's three different levels. The highest of all is when you get invited to go into the Holy of Holies, only invited by the priest to go into there. Then there's a room for those, uh, you can cross a, a line or a, a, a banister only if you're Orthodox. After that, you stay behind, and there's three different levels there. And we're looking at this going, 
this is kind of amazing. What did we learn about the Russia history that you love? You love the history and the architecture. Oh, just when you go to St. Petersburg and the siege that took place there, it just it's just heart-wrenching to see what those people went through. We went to a city of Volgograd. Which was the old Stalingrad. And how many people lost their lives? Almost two million. Almost two million in that one siege. When you see the life that has been sacrificed there for their freedom and the suffering, it's just, it's overwhelming. It's overwhelming. We don't learn in the United States much about the Eastern Front of World War II. Most of our discussion is about England and France and all of the Western Front or, or about the Pacific Front. But Russia lost 26 million lives in World War II. The U.S. lost less than 500,000. And when you realize that Hitler made an incredible mistake when he opened up, because he had to open up three fronts just to go against Russia. It's the same thing that destroyed Napoleon. He couldn't win it either. We both gained an appreciation and a love for the Russian people. How long did you end up being there? Three years? Three years. Just quickly, a couple of the experience. We had countries like some very Muslim countries. We had Turkey. We had missionaries actually proselyting in Turkey, which is 99% Muslim. We were with President Nelson when he dedicated the country of Uzbekistan. We were with him in Kazakhstan when he met with the man that is, and we did, we did with him, met with the man that is now the president of the country of Kazakhstan. All of the Baltic countries in Ukraine and Bulgaria. We went to a museum in Bulgaria that has golden plates on a golden ring binder that was made in the 4th to 5th century B.C. Hmm. Fascinating things we've seen and learned. Why don't you share a little bit of the experience we had with President Sister Nelson? We went to seven countries with them in 10 days, and I was tired. <laughs> but to watch him just hop up the steps into the plane and keep going and teach in every setting we went to was inspiring to me. To watch him in the city of Ekaterinburg, Russia, at the end of his remarks, he asked the translator to sit down, and he bore his testimony in Russian. And to see the tears of these saints who loved him and who loved the gospel, that he could talk to them in their language and bear testimony to them in their language was just so amazing and um, just built their testimonies as well as mine. Wonderful experiences with him. I can tell you, I know with all of my heart that he truly is a man of God and he has chosen today to lead the church, to be the prophet on the earth today. I've never seen anyone that lives the two great commandments like President Nelson does. He teaches love and kindness and acceptance and obedience and goodness everywhere he goes. Let me echo that too. This he, We were with him those 10 days, about two and a half months before he was made president of the church. And you cannot be around him without knowing that he's a prophet of God. You can't. When he became president of the church, there's, there's a lunchroom in the church administration building, and it's a general authority lunchroom. Seldom in the past before did the first presidency ever come and have lunch with the other general authorities there. When President Nelson became president of the church, 
He told the first presidency, I want us to have lunch down there every day we can. That's where we can talk to the 70 and find out what's going on around the world. They're close to the 12, but they don't spend as much time with the 70. But at lunch, you just sit at a table of four people and one of them will be President Nelson. And you, you see how humbly he listens and yet you leave in awe and amazed with the testimony that you have that he is a prophet of God without any doubt. I see members of the church be critical of members of the Quorum of the Twelve or the First Presidency. I've never, ever known more loving, dedicated, like Jenny said about President Nelson. These 15 we sustain as prophets, seers, and revelators are incredible. Just incredible. Our first year and a half we were in Russia, our supervising member of the Quorum of the Twelve was President Nelson. That's why he came over. Our last year and a half in Russia, our supervising member of the Quorum of the Twelve was Dieter F. Uchtdorf. And so we spent considerable time with him as well. Elder Holland came while we were there. And, and one thing Elder Holland said as we were driving through the streets in Moscow is, Russia stirs my soul. He said that and it does the same for me. It just stirs my soul to be there and to hear that history and see those faithful saints who oftentimes lose their jobs because they're not willing to deny their testimony. Yeah, it's, it, it, it is absolutely amazing experience we had being there. I think a lot of members of the church think of general authorities and the most visible thing we typically see is them speaking in general conference. But clearly your experience day to day is one of being among the people and truly being a witness of the Savior and making a difference in the things that you're doing. And what's also clear from speaking with the two of you is that while Elder Martino is serving as a general authority, Sister Martino is right there and involved as well. It's just been an honor for me to follow along and to meet these people, to also have the opportunity to testify in all of these countries um, of the Savior and of the Restoration. I remember when I was a mission president and I was watching the area presidency, which was made up of General Authority 70, and their wives. And I thought then, wow, nobody in the church really understands how much the wives of the 70 give and how much their children give. And I've watched my wife grow in incredible ways. I've seen her set an example to saints all over the world. We have had the opportunity to bear testimony of the Savior on every inhabitable continent except Australia. We haven't been assigned there ever. And I've watched as she expresses love to the people wherever we are, expresses her testimony and witness that Heavenly Father is our Father and wants us to return to Him as families. I've watched her bear witness of Jesus Christ. And I've watched her, no matter where we are, 
be the glue of holding our families together. One of the great things that she's done, and most of the wives of the 70 that I've seen, and of the 12, a lot of what they do is communicate to family and extended family to keep them involved with what's going on. It's great to see a companionship operate like that. There's a role for everyone to play. I gave a report at one of the last quorum of the 70 meetings. We're invited to kind of recap our years. And one of the things that I mentioned that was one of the tremendous blessings of this calling was how the two of us have become more as one and more in love with each other than ever before. We didn't think that was possible, but that's what's happened. Without a doubt. Well, I mentioned earlier that one of the most visible things members of the church see of a general authority is speaking in general conference. You've had that experience a couple of times. What's that like? You know what? It's a tremendous privilege and, and, and people wonder how nervous are you? You have gone over that talk so many times. You're looking at it on a teleprompter. You're not worried. You're worried you're going to trip going up there <laughs> and you don't worry about anybody out in front of you. You worry, how are those that are sitting right behind me in those big red chairs as first presidents in the Quorum of the Twelve? Because they didn't assign it. They didn't approve it. There is a correlation committee that looks at it just to be sure that the doctrine's totally set and all of that. But what you do, Eric, more than anything is you spend a good bit of time saying, Heavenly Father, I have certain gifts. What am I supposed to talk about that will bless the lives of saints? And it's when you get a letter from somebody in Africa or somewhere else all over the world that says, your talk made a difference to me. And then you realize, okay, hopefully I did hear the promptings of the Spirit correctly and what I was supposed to talk about. I will say this, when you are given your time, you are told, do not go over even 10 seconds. Because if you go over, you're going to take time from the concluding speaker, which is normally a member of the First Presidency. And so you are very, very cautious to not ever go beyond what your time limit is. It's a great experience. I think I was more nervous for him than he was for him. <laughs> <laughs> and it's, you know, it's not something that we ever dreamed we'd be doing. Here we are, two young converts from Denton, Texas. And there are times we would pinch ourselves and say, are we really getting to do this? And we are as ordinary as anybody is but we had an extraordinary calling. And now you will get released officially in general conference in October. And then what's next for you? We're teaching gospel doctrine together in our ward. <laughs> and you know what? We're spending time with family that we haven't been able to spend time with. I can't tell you how long it's been. We've got grandkids that are now seniors in high school that when we left, they were only five. So we've never seen their soccer games, and yet they were on the state championship last year and things like that. And so we're going to enjoy some family time. We're going to travel a little bit. And, and we, we, people say, well, you've already been traveling. Yeah, we've seen airports, chapels, chapels and hotels, <laughs> basically is what we see. And now we're going to try to see some of the other things. So we'll do a little bit of that. All we want to do 
is be able to serve. Hopefully we'll serve in the temple. Doesn't matter. So long as we can just, we need to be a witness that it truly does not matter what kind of calling we have. It only matters that we give with all of our heart, might, mind, and strength in whatever. There is no calling that is a requisite for any exaltation. The only thing that matters there is to make covenants and keep them and learn to become Christ-like in our thoughts and in our words and our actions. What I have observed in very, very special ways is that Jesus Christ literally leads this church in more ways than we really understand. He leads his church through apostles and prophets today. I know that. I've learned that. And I bear witness of that because of how much I know it. And uh, it has been a blessing to be able to serve. But let me also say this. It is a blessing to be back in Texas. And we're grateful to be home and hope that in some way, we might be able to influence particularly youth and young adults and others. Don't fall off the covenant path. Don't let Satan confuse you. This is the truth. And nothing can change that. No history that you don't understand. No policies that you don't understand. I bear witness that these things are true. I know it. What do you want to add? That the atonement is real. What we say the atonement covers, it does. It is real. It covers all unfairness, all hurt, all heartache, all sorrow, all illness. It covers everything that we say it does. And Jesus Christ volunteered, volunteered to make that sacrifice and atonement for each one of us. And I am so, so grateful to know that and to believe it and to see it uh, in action in my own life. He is the Savior and Redeemer of the world. I testify to that. Thank you for your testimonies. That's wonderful. I think that's a good place to end, unless there's anything you would add. We just are grateful to be alive, to be together and to have experienced these things hand in hand with one another. Well, thank you very much for being with us. Okay. Thank you for the invitation. Our guests on this podcast have been Elder James B. Martino of the First Quorum of the Seventy and his wife, Sister Jenny Martino. We wish them all the best as they settle back into their Texas home. For Lone Star Latter-day Saint Voices, I'm Eric Egan.